Amen and good morning. Hey, you folks sounded pretty good singing. Not too bad. Our uh, Jonathan and Precious Mast are away. This was a known thing to us, um, celebrating their 10th wedding anniversary. I think they went to the Bahamas or something crazy like that. So um, they will be back and uh, with us next Sunday for Mother's Day. Um, One thing of note, we will be actually officially having a special installation service for them on the 19th and doing a few special things during the service May 19th for them, installing them. Sounds kind of like an appliance, like we're installing an appliance. Um, But they are a special part of our church family, and we will welcome them. They will have some special guests with us that day, and we will um, welcome them. We'll have a little cake reception in the foyer afterwards, so make sure you're here for that. Today, we have a new member and baptism class Downstairs, it's actually a little pizza pastor get-together, and it's downstairs in um, our fellowship hall area, and I think we have about 30 new members signed up for that. Isn't that cool? So, and maybe you swung in today and you're like, you know, I'd like to find out what this church is all about, and even if you didn't sign up, we got to an extra pizza or two. We got room for you if you want to come down uh, after the service. Come on down and be a part of things. We'll just set up another table and we welcome you uh, to that. Uh, Along with uh, Pastor Reist, I want to say a big thank you, thank you dear, for your um, investment into our roof fund It was a lofty goal and need of $39,000 for that. And we are within $1,500. But here's the crazy thing. This is the thing that blows me away. At the same time that we raised that, we were about $20,000 behind in our general fund giving through all those hard winter months. And we have, during those months of raising that roof fund money, we have eliminated that deficit in our general fund, and we are in the black. So that's phenomenal. So I just want to say, I'm just so proud of you folks and your kindness and generosity and faithfulness, and, you know, we're within $1,500, so that means that... um, We should be able to do the entire roof except for a part of the balcony over this area, I think. So um, I think we should be in really good shape. So here we go, our comeback series. Um, You know, we've been studying people who have drifted away from God into unrighteousness. And that kind of makes sense in our mind. Whenever we think of drifters and people that need to come back don't you normally think of people that went away into unrighteousness those are the ones far from god those are the ones that need to come back it makes sense to us that computes in our mind but today's something completely different it's about a man whose name is saul And it later changed to Paul, who was far away from God. Now catch this, it wasn't in unrighteousness, it was in self-righteousness. He wasn't far from God in unrighteousness, he was far from God in self-righteousness. And to talk about this, get a jump start in your copy of the scriptures or on your iPhone or whatever you got to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3, starting in verse 4, is where we're going to launch off from this morning. Philippians 3, starting in verse 4. And while you turn there, check this passage out. This is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. And Jesus told this account. And and I want you to, it'll help us get up to speed on this whole issue of self-righteousness. What it is what it does, 
and, and, and really how people should view it. So check this out, Luke 18, 9 to 14. Here's what Jesus tells in the story. So, so listen to this. To some who were, here's the, here's the big phrase, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. That's the big phrase, self-righteous. To, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Here was his prayer. God, I thank you that I am not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up into heaven. The text says he beat his chest and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, and I tell you, that tax collector, rather than the other guy, went home right with God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So notice this about self-righteousness. What makes the self-righteous person feel of more value? And as we see from this text, is that they don't do certain things. I don't do certain things, and that makes me of more value than the person who does do those things. Notice he says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like all those other people that do those bad things. And then what makes them of more value in their mind is that they do things that others don't do. And he says, you know what? I, I'm there. I'm there at church. I give a tenth. I do all of this. And he's given this impression that makes me of more value. The other thing about this self-righteous individual, it's interesting, they are far away from God. And, and Jesus says, so there's the tax collector, there's this self-righteous individual, and he says, guess which one went home right with God? The tax collector. So that begs the question, guess which one went home not right with God? The Pharisee. The self-righteous one far away from God. Here's the other thing about them. They were totally blind to it. But guess which one went home far from God but thought they were closer to God than the other one? Totally blind to the reality that they're far from God. The self-righteous person actually believes they're closer to God for their superior accomplishments and personal goodness. The unrighteous person actually is probably more understanding and realize, you know what, yeah, I am far from God. I've got some ground to gain. The self-righteous person actually is self-deceived. They're blinded. They think they're okay. And in fact, they think they're even better off. So here we are in Philippians chapter 3. We're going to see a testimony of a self-righteous individual. This is Saul. This is Paul. And he's going to tell us a little bit about his life and what was going on and what he thought about himself and how all this shook out. So here we are in Philippians chapter 3. You've sat down long enough. The blood has now officially sunk down into your seat. So stand together. Get the blood up toward your brain where it needs to be. I'm going to read verses 4 down through 11. And then we're going to get thinking through this thing together. Verses 4 through 11, Philippians chapter 3. So follow along in your copy of Scripture. Here, here he talks about um, 
his accomplishments. He says, though I myself have reasons for such confidence in the flesh. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, in regard to the law, Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness, based on the law, bam, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes. To know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. You see, we got a fun one here this morning, so have a seat. Let's talk about this. So Paul warns the readers, anyone who trusts in performance, human performance, to find their value and personal identity. And Paul says, okay, I'm at the top of the list. If anyone thinks that they've got a lot of things personally to trust in, like a lot of personal accomplishments, Paul says, here I am. And in fact, he gives a whole list of things and personal accomplishments that people would have looked at him and said, man, he is on it. This guy has quite the resume for religious accomplishments. And so notice what he just navigates through. Starting in verse 5, and some of these obviously were not his choice. They happened to him, but people would say, you have done everything you need to do. Mentions he was circumcised the eighth day. And this was significant in biblical times, even the timing of this. He was a true member of God's covenant people of Israel. His parents' lineage could be traced all the way back to Abraham. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and what was significant with that? That was Israel's first king came from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was a Hebrew son to Hebrew parents, and he knew all the customs. He knew all the language. He didn't adopt any Greek customs. This guy was on it. He was of the strictest sect among the people, the Pharisees, and in addition to the law of Moses, they had their own regulations. I'm just going to mention what they are. He was ambitious. He was so ambitious about his religion. Anyone else, he was going to take them on. Like, if you think anything different religiously, you're on. Let's go toe-to-toe, man. And in fact, he did go toe-to-toe even with the church. And it was even his command that the first martyr that we saw of the church happen, it was Stephen. He mentions in here, and if there was anything of any law, any rule, he came out with this one last thing on his resume, faultless, like white glove test me. Find if there's any issue in me that anyone could say, You're, you flopped. You haven't done it the way you needed to do it. He says, I'm, I'm blameless, man. I've done it all. And these folks added laws. These folks put on all kinds of additional things. There's this book called the Mishnah. 
which was a virtual encyclopedia of pharisaical codes of behavior, and there was all kinds of unbelievable detail of all areas of conduct, hundreds of codes of behavioral minutiae passed on by oral tradition, and guess what? Paul did it all. This guy was on fire. And he would have been a person who would say, you know what? I stack up. I have value and identity in what I have done. I realize if anyone could put personal value in their personal accomplishments, it's me. It's me. Now, Paul isn't here today. We are. And I'm here to be very honest. Maybe you feel you don't have to come back from unrighteousness. But from the scope of the church in general, can I just... Um, Can we just all be real here today? Probably if there's something that the church in general needs to navigate through, it's the issue of self-righteousness. And I'm just here to tell you, I'll be right at the front of the line. Okay? Now, Here's a little test. Let's take a test today. I know you all love tests, so let's take one. Test of self-righteousness. So I'm going to ask you, how do you describe your identification as a Christian? So someone comes up to you and says, you know what, hey, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Well, tell me some things that help me know that you're a Christian. That would be interesting, wouldn't it? So what would you do, what would you tell them to identify yourself as a Christian? So let's talk about it. What do you feel gives you value as a believer? What do you feel gives you more value as a believer? This would be interesting. So I wrote down some things. Some of these things would even be on my list. Some, someone may say, well, I'm a Christian. I'm an elder. I lead the ladies' Bible study. That's not on my list, by the way. I'm a small group leader. I give to missions. I went to Bible college. I don't just give 10%, I give 20%. Or some people will say, you know what, here's the things I don't do. I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't have a tattoo. I got the Timothy Award. I only listen to Christian radio. I teach Sunday school. Well, obviously, look at my hair length. Some people don't have much of a choice about that, do you? I go on missions trips. I'm Calvinist. Here's my dress style. There are things that people will look at about themselves, and folks, I'm not saying that these things are wrong in and of themselves. The challenge is, what do you feel gives you value or more value as a Christian? Here's the test. Here's test question number two. How do you view people or churches who don't do your things? Now we're into the second part of the test. How do you view people or churches who don't do your things? 
or haven't achieved your accomplishments. And how we view people or churches who don't do it our way or people who haven't achieved our accomplishments, it says something about us. If I'm here with my tattoo-less body and I look over and the guy next to me on the pew Is that a tattoo? I need to slip him a Bible track during the service. During that one worship song, I think that person can dance. You know, that church only gives... 8% to missions, and we give 12%. So guess which one's better? How we view people or churches who don't do it our way says something about us. And gang, we're on to something this morning. Because I was convicted when I studied this. Christians can be terrible with this. I read this story about two men who met by chance and they began to talk religion. And one guy finally came out with it. He said, I'm a Baptist. The other guy said, so am I. The first guy said, I'm a Baptist regular conference. And the other guy said, so am I. The other guy said, I'm a Baptist regular conference, Missouri State. And the other guy began to get very excited. He said, so am I. And the man said, I'm Baptist regular conference, Missouri State conservative arm. The guy says, wow, so am I. And the man said, I'm Baptist, regular conference, Missouri State, conservative arm, southern branch. Unbelievable. He said, me too. And the man says, I'm Baptist, regular conference, Missouri State, conservative arm, southern branch, 1924 declaration. The other guy said, what? I'm the 1928 Declaration. Die, heretic scum. (laughs) It's based on a true story. I've been there, folks. I've had it all figured out. Not that we don't have to figure things out. But some of the way I've looked at other people, and I'll just be honest, sometimes I'm still there. Can I be open with you? Sometimes I'm still there. Sometimes churches can be incubators for self-righteousness. We try to please God, and maybe in our efforts we erect something that then we feel makes us more valuable to God than others. (laughs) I feel like this self-righteous anonymous group, you know? Hello, my name is Brian and I'm self-righteous. You know, I go on Facebook, and I'm just, let me just be open. I go on Facebook, and I see some of my pastor friends from Bible college. And instantly, instantly, my judgmental mind, click, 
and, and I'll see the type of church that they are in. I'll see the type of programming they're doing, and I make instant judgments about what it is. And so let me, I'm just going to be open, so I'll, I'll look and, you know, my buddy, and he's back in another state, and I see his church, and he's up there with his three-piece suit, and I think in my mind instantly, oh, legalist. Instantly. I got a couple buddies downstate. A little bit younger, they lift weights. They're all, bleh. <laughs> they get this brand new church building with all their lights. They look all cool, and I go on Facebook, and they got their pictures. I'm like, oh, pfft. look at them with all their lights and all their muscle, all their hair ridiculous instantly I mean, ah! and we do it instant judgment it's a self-righteous I think I'm more valuable to God than they are because I do it this way when God sees them, he may smile, but when he sees me, he really smiles. Because we have it better. I please him more because I do it much better. Here's some identifiers of self-righteousness. I think you're getting the feel for it. Some identifiers of self-righteousness. They find their spiritual identification or value in personal accomplishments. We're going to see why that's so significant in just a moment. They find their spiritual identification or value in personal accomplishments. And you know where this goes because you can kind of get a feel for it through what I've been saying. It develops pride or a sense of superiority. You know what I'm talking about. You could hear it in what I was just saying. Oh, I, I'm better. We're better. We do it better. I feel bad for them. It fosters this judgmentalism toward others. We begin to make these snap decisions about who they are, where their heart is, how God must view them. And here's the crazy thing, and here's where, you know what, folks? I've had to confess to God sin. Because I have failed to identify the work God was doing in others because it didn't look the way like I was doing it. Sad to say, like the Apostle Paul when he was Saul, I preached messages about other churches <laughs> that just didn't do the same program I did. and question their commitment to God and his word. How shallow. Anyway. How do we come back? We need to come back. Christianity needs to come back. From this and there's two reminders I think that can help us in this 
And, and Paul gives an indicator in Philippians chapter 3 how we can begin this comeback from this self-righteousness, this predisposition that what we do makes us more valuable to God. And here's the first reminder. Right there in the text in Philippians in chapter 3, and I'm just going to give it to you. Man, this is a biggie. And here's what it is. Christianity, folks, is all about Christ, not us. Christianity is all about Christ, not us. And here's where he navigates this whole concept. There's two main elements underneath this point. He mentions in verse 7, he looks at his past accomplishments and then his present accomplishments. He says, but whatever were gains to me. Now there's the past tense. Remember, he just walked through, here's, I was circumcised the eighth day, I was a Pharisee, I was a Hebrew, I was of the tribe of Benjamin. He went through all of that. Remember that? Whatever in the past, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss. It's nothing. It's meaningless. And I consider it loss for the sake of Christ. But now notice verse 8, and this is the key thing because he's no longer looking at the past. He says in verse 8, now he's looking at the present and what is more. So now, lock into now. What is more? Like, let's talk about now. What is more? I consider everything currently a loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So he goes into this and he says, nothing compares with personally knowing Jesus Christ. So we're, we're navigating into this understanding from whom do we get our value? And it's not from our personal accomplishments. The ultimate goal of Christianity is not so that we just do stuff and make ourselves feel more valuable. But he says the highest thing of all, past all of the stuff, from his heritage and history, and even past all of his current stuff, which you realize what he's doing right now? He was a missionary. He was planting churches. He was hobnobbing it with all the other spiritual leaders of his day. He was an apostle. He says, I take all of that, and I consider it all a loss because there's something better there's something greater none of that compares with the value of knowing Jesus Christ like having a personal connection with Jesus Christ there is this and he uses this superlative this surpassing worth Stack up anything you think is valuable. Just put it out there. What do you think is valuable? I'm a missionary. That's nice. It's a loss compared to knowing Jesus. I'm a pastor. Nice. It's a loss compared to knowing Jesus. I'm an apostle. Nifty. Loss compared to knowing Jesus. Anything that we can do, it's a loss. There's an example in Bible days of two women. They were sisters. Um, one was Mary, one was Martha. Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Jesus had come over 
to their home and Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus just soaking it all in. And Martha was like, I have got to serve. I've got to get the meal done. I've got to get everything prepped. Most likely was he and his disciples there. So it was really interesting. Martha's running around getting everything ready and Mary's just sitting at his feet and just soaking in everything that Jesus is saying. And finally, Martha gets ticked. And I know exactly what it was like because about every evening after our meal when the kids are doing the dishes and one is not, and they come to us, they say exactly what Martha said to Jesus. Hey, don't you care that they aren't helping at all? And it was really interesting because Martha came over to Jesus and that's what she said. I am working so hard to prepare all of this stuff, Jesus, for you and for your disciples. I'm getting this whole meal together and Mary's just sitting there listening to you. Here's what Jesus says. Martha, you're worried about many things. But few things are needed. And then he says this. In fact, really only one is needed. Here's what he says. And Mary, she's chosen the right one. She's connecting with me. There was once a Shakespearean actor who was known everywhere for his one-man shows of readings and recitations from the classics. And every night he would always end his performance with the reading of Psalm 23. And each night, without exception, as the actor began his recitation, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The crowd would listen in attention. And at the conclusion of the psalm and this crescendo, they would rise in thunderous applause and appreciation of the actor's incredible ability to bring the verse to life. But one night, just before the actor was about to offer his customary recital of Psalm 23, a young boy from the audience spoke up. He said, sir, do you mind if tonight I recite Psalm 23? <laughs> the actor was taken back and said, sure. You can go ahead and so the boy went ahead and when he was finished there was no applause no standing ovation as on other nights and all that could be heard was the sound of weeping the audience was so moved by the young man's recitation that every eye was full of tears And amazed by what he had heard, the actor said to the youth behind stage, I, I don't understand. I've been performing Psalm 23 for years. I have a lifetime of experience and training, but I've never been able to move an audience as you have tonight. He says, tell me, what, what was your secret? And the young boy said this, well, sir, you know the psalm but I know the shepherd. Folks, there's nothing we can do that's more valuable than knowing Jesus. Nothing. Here's the second thing. And there's nothing we do that compares with what he did for us on the cross. Nothing we do compares with what he did for us on the cross. Verses 8 and 9, and he navigates into that present tense, like I said, verse 8. What is more, I consider everything, even everything now, he says, a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
For whose sake I lost all things, I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Now catch this phraseology, not having a righteousness of my own. Not having self-righteousness that comes from the law, it comes from personal achievement but a righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Interesting, he says, everything I've done, it's not only a loss, he says, I consider them garbage. Let's just do a little Bible study check. How many of your translations say the word garbage? Raise your hand. How many of your Bible translations say dung or something of the equivalent? Raise your hand. How many say, where am I this morning? What's going on? A lot of hands never went up. I mean, what's going on here? Let me, let me you know, so I, I noticed, I, I memorized this as a child, and it was, um, it was dung. And my translation says Garbage. So I went about a half-hour useless study. What is it? So I'm, I'm here to tell you this morning and clear up all of this for your spiritual benefit. It's dung. I was talking to my parents this week on the phone, talking to my mom. And my dad was there. He's on speakerphone. I was pre-preaching my message to him. And uh, they, they, sometimes they ask, hey, what are you preaching on this week? So I tell them, you know. I get to this, and I, and I said, and all of our accomplishments are poo. And my mom says, Brian, you are not saying that word in church. <laughs> so I just did. <laughs> okay. Man, I hope she doesn't listen to this tape. I am in trouble. Oh, my. Okay, anyways, moving on. Why would God, or why would Paul call our good works, I can't even say it anymore, dung, garbage? Number one, compared to Jesus' work, they are. Like, really? <laughs> really? I give 20%. Nice. He gave everything on the cross. Um, how's it comparing, folks? You know? I went to a foreign land. Hey, good for you. He came from heaven to earth. So um, how's it going for you there? You know? There's nothing we do that compares with what he's done for us. Even in the book of Isaiah, talking about our righteousness, our good stuff, calls it filthy rags like that's nice like my good stuff is filthy yeah it just doesn't measure up and so in comparison to what god has done for us our good works they really don't measure up they're dung and then here's the other reason why they are dung they have no value to gain us relationship with God. They have no value to earn us heaven. So we can amass all of our works, all of our self-righteousness, and come to God and say, see, here you go. I want to get into heaven, and none of it will get us in. Zero. There's not a thing we can do to get us in. And in fact, the Bible is very plain. It says, it is by grace that you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. And here's the big phrase, not by works, so that no one can boast. Nothing we do gets us in. Zero. And in fact, later on in the book of Titus, it says, not by works of righteousness that we've done, but by his mercy, he saved us. And so there's nothing we can do 
There's no good work that has any value to get us in. It is solely by the work of Jesus Christ. When he died on the cross, not only did he pay the penalty for all of our sin. Here's the other thing that happened. There's this doctrine called imputation of his righteousness. So when he died on the cross, for those that believe that he died for them, and folks, I do, I believe when he died on the cross, he died for me, for all my sin, and so all my sin is forgiven, it's gone. But not only does he take all my sin away, this doctrine of imputation is, he takes all my sin away, and in its place, His righteousness is imputed or given to me. So when God sees me, he not only doesn't see my sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So my righteousness isn't really going to help me out, folks. And in fact, really? And if you put my righteousness with Christ, God will be even happier? Really? Really? story is told of this woman um, who was on the Titanic as it was going down. And they were trying to get people on some of these rescue boats. And she said, just a minute, just a minute. And she ran back into the Titanic. And they're like, what is she doing? And, and people were wondering, is she going in to get some of her jewels, her precious belongings? It's interesting, when she came back, she had her arms full of oranges and apples from the fruit bowl. And for all the things that were on the Titanic, none of them would be of any worth to her on a rescue boat. Except those kinds of things. And folks, of all the things that we can do in this world, none of them are of any value to us for getting to heaven, for having a relationship with Jesus Christ except putting our faith and trust in him and what he did for us on the cross. And boy, we got to get going. Although sometimes I think preachers that go over are more valuable. (laughs) Oh, you're not going to buy it after this message. Okay, here's number two. Churches should be the greatest incubators of humility on this earth. I don't think I need to beat this one to death. The two reminders to come back from self-righteousness. Christianity is all about Christ. It's not about us. Nothing compares with knowing him personally. Nothing compares with what he did for us on the cross. And churches should be this incubator of humility. And think about it. This is so, like, Duh, the main prerequisite for getting into Christianity. Like, you want to get into Christianity? Okay, here's the first test. Are you a sinner? Like, really? Isn't that great? There's no place for pride here, folks. The first prerequisite is that we've blown it and we need a Savior. This should be the biggest incubator for humility on the planet. Even 1 Corinthians 1 says, Jesus chose the lowly things of the earth. Well, God chose me. Nice, he chose the lowly things of the earth. Yeah, that's us. And the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one can boast. It is because of him you're in Christ who has become for us the wisdom from God that is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore it is written, I love this phrase, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's so cool. Churches should be the greatest incubators of humility on this earth because obviously to get in, it's because we're sinners. And our leader, Jesus, humbled himself for us. If Jesus humbled himself and gave it all, obviously, we do. 
I give you one last story. Good theologian of old, Dr. Harry Ironside, was once convicted about his lack of humility. And a friend recommended as a remedy that he march through the streets of Chicago wearing this sandwich board, shouting the scripture verses that were on the board for all to hear. And he's like, this will help you with humility. Walk through Chicago, a sandwich board, saying the scriptures that are on it. So Dr. Ironside agreed to this venture, figuring it'll help him with his humility. And he went ahead, he did it, he returned to his study, and he removed the board, and then he said, you know what? I'll bet you there's not another man in this whole area that would do something like that. (laughs) Man, do we struggle with this. So here's the big last phrase I want to give you. Have a low view of what we do and a high view of what he did. A low view of what we do and a high view of what he did. Christianity must be about Christ, not his disciples, okay? In order to say, thy kingdom come, we must be willing to say, my kingdom go. And say with John the Baptist, as he did two millennia ago, he must increase, I must decrease. This is all about him. Not about me, not about my righteousness. Breed some humility in the body of Christ. Would you stand with me? And God sparked this infectious, contagious humility percolate it in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to beat back the impulses of this pervasive, self-righteous mindset that sadly has been a part of church culture And forgive me, God, I've been a part of it. I've fed it, I've bred it, taught it, bought it. God, there's no greater value that we can have, none that we can give ourselves. Nothing greater than the value of Jesus Christ in our lives. His righteousness on our lives. Knowing Him personally. Loving Him. Nothing greater. May those things get the greatest price tag in our hearts. May we have a low view of what we do and a high view of what he did. And all of these faiths said.